Please open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Oh, Lord God, the vision in this text is so great. It's way beyond my capacity to say it as it ought to be said. And the reality towards which it all points, this great building, this great temple, this great reconciled, unified body in which God himself, you yourself, dwell. This is unspeakably great. And I ask for your help, oh God to deal with this issue of racial harmony in a way that will not be trivial or trifling, but will be earnest and true and biblical and effective, life-changing. Oh God, work a new, deep, fresh work in our hearts and in our church and in our city. Lord, we need your help in these regards, and I pray that your voice would sound with power, because when you speak, things change. And when man speaks, little changes. So come and speak, I pray, through me, and help me to be faithful to this word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. It's a national holiday that in 1983 the Congress established to celebrate the life and vision of Martin Luther King, who was killed in 1968. In fact, his birthday was yesterday, and I computed and realized he would have been 71 yesterday, which isn't very old. I know a lot of very robust 
70-year-olds. And I just dwelt yesterday on the thought, what would American culture, what would our cities and our suburbs and our schools look like today if that man had been trumpeting his vision through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s? It just took my breath away to think about it and to think what can happen in a moment, one crack of a bullet, how a whole culture can be changed. I think it would have been different. It would have been very, very different. He was really quite one of a kind, imperfect as he was. Now, why a sermon, you might ask? Why do you do this? When this, this holiday rolls around, why you preach on that? You don't preach on every social issue that comes along. And, and so I want to give you some background. I want to give you a reason, several reasons. The biggest one is in the text. We'll get to that in a minute. It's all about the cross, folks. It's all about the blood of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the design of the death of the Son of God. If you care about the Son of God... If you care about the blood of Christ, if you care about the death of the greatest person who ever was, you have to care about the design of the death, the aim of the death. And that text tells us what it was. But let me give you some personal reasons, because the cross relates to everything, and I don't preach on everything. So there's a lot of personal stuff in my life that relates to this. I don't have to have my arm twisted by the elders or anybody else to preach on this, there are impulses inside of me that very much want to do this. I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. you got to know something about the psyche of South Carolina. In 1860, there were about 703,000 people in South Carolina. 60% of them were black. African-American. That's about 420,000 people. 411,000 of them were slaves. December 20, 1860, South Carolina, first state to secede from the Union in response to the election of an anti-slavery president, Abraham Lincoln. 1861, the first shots of the Civil War, Charleston, South Carolina. Today, in the newspaper, sports page, yesterday, Barnabas showed it to me. I don't read the sports page. My son memorizes the sports page. <laughs> All about South Carolina. They will not give their state employees tomorrow off. And they fly the Confederate flag, and there's a big flap over it there, Mississippi, Alabama, today. And they know exactly what that flag stands for. Ninety-five years later, I was nine years old. Just think of it. That doesn't sound like a long time to you, does it? Ninety-five years from 1860 to when I was nine years old in South Carolina. And the segregation was absolute. Separate drinking fountains. Separate restrooms. Separate public schools. 
separate seating on buses, separate housing, separate restaurants, separate waiting rooms at doctor's offices and in train stations, and worst of all, separate churches. And not by default, but by design. I belong to one of them. I was there at the business meeting when those decisions were made as a child. I remember some glorious things about my mother, who's dead, but stood alone many times during 63 and 64. I can tell you from the inside, in spite of all the the, uh, rhetorical glosses, it was not separate but equal. It was not beautiful. It was not respectful, and it was not Christian. It was ugly, and it was demeaning. And I have much to be sorry for. I've told you that before. I will no doubt tell you it again. And there is inside of me a lot of impulse that wants to work against the mindset and the condition of heart that I grew up in and shared in. And it goes on. Today there and today here. Here's an interesting twist. Across town, five years older than I, was another little boy growing up named Jesse Jackson. And I learned last summer, talking to a man that knows him, that his mother and my mother listened to the very same radio station, WMUU, the voice of Bob Jones University. And Jesse Jackson's mother hung on every word of Bob Jones Sr., that rough, hard-talking, fundamentalistic preacher. And so did my mother. There was a big difference. Jesse Jackson couldn't go to Bob Jones University. And I could have, if I wanted to. And the big Baptist church just down the road from where he lived couldn't go there either. That's my town. That's my heritage. As a little aside, should we be surprised that there's a kind of liberal twist to the most articulate, strongest black leadership. I think of Jackson, I think of King, I think of others. Should we be surprised that there's a kind of Protestant liberal twist when in fact the only schools open to them were liberal schools? Jesse Jackson, after North Carolina A&T, went to Chicago Theological Seminary. God showed mercy on me. Wasn't anything in me. And took me to certain schools where I began to see some things about myself and about my background that were very helpful. In 1968, the year that King was shot in Memphis on April 4, I started seminary in California. And I had some good teachers, none of color, but some good white teachers, who whose hearts were aflame with this issue. Everybody was aflame with this issue, some negatively, some positively. The late 60s was a very explosive time. And I had a teacher 
named Paul Jewett. Don't don't agree with Paul Jewett on everything. He was a good teacher of systematic theology. And I didn't keep many syllabi from seminary. In fact, I didn't keep but two syllabi from seminary. No, three. Two from Dan Fuller and this one. It's called Annotated Readings in Racial Prejudice, compiled by Paul King Jewett. This has been on my shelf for 30 years. You can't, you can't read what he assembled here. I'll just read you the chapter headings. Racial prejudice in the form of physical brutality. Stories, 40 pages of stories. Racial prejudice in the form of personal indignities. Stories. Racial prejudice and the death of incentive. Racial prejudice and the irrational. Racial prejudice and the black woman. Racial prejudice and the, the black response to it. Racial prejudice and the white psyche. This is a horrifying collection of documents which so shocked me. And to this day, as I dipped in again, shocked me. You can't read it without trembling and without some measure of understanding of what's the truth in America today. Here's a quote from the end of the introduction. Now let us listen to the groans of Frederick Douglass. Feel the lash with Amy. Endure the satire of Dubois. Measure the wrath of Malcolm X. Let us contemplate the pathos of black childhood and the tragedy of black womanhood. And let us not forget that he who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps to perpetrate it. He who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. And let us also remember that if God has given us a revelation of the true nature of man, surely we will render account if we do not live in the light of that revelation. And especially if we are called to the holy office of the Christian ministry. Those were really powerful days in my life. Really powerful days. And now I am called to the holy office of the Christian ministry. And I have been given a revelation of the true meaning of humanity. And I will be called to account for whether I live and teach in accord with the truth of the Bible on this issue. And hence some of the passions for me this week. You know, as secular as the civil rights movement of the 60s was, there was some mighty powerful Christian impulses under it and in it. Sometimes they were very explicit. Sometimes they came out indirectly. But they were there functioning as some of the most powerful impulses. And let me just tip you off to one or two of them. For example, Martin Luther King won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. And he went with his family, his mother and his father, his wife, and uh, went to Oslo to receive the prize. And they were gathered in a, in a big room and a lot of dignitaries and ready to lift their champagne in toast. And this old man king, his father, uneducated, 
wise, deep, God-centered Baptist pastor stood up, caught them before they toasted and said, Wait a minute before you start all your toasts to each other. We better not forget to toast the man who brought us here. And here's a toast to God. Then in a quavering voice, he told what his son's prize meant to him. I always wanted to make a contribution. And all you got to do, if you want to contribute, you got to ask the Lord and let him know. And the Lord heard me. And in some special kind of way, I don't even know, he came down through Georgia and he laid his hand on me and my wife and he gave us Martin Luther King. And our prayers were answered. I want to make a contribution. And so I I prayed. And the Lord came up through Minnesota and he gave me Karsten and Benjamin. And Abraham and Barnabas. And then, I don't know how, Talitha, Ruth, Piper. And then he gave me a a church in the middle of a very racially diverse city. A church that will let me preach this sermon. I didn't grow up in a church where I could preach this sermon. And I love you for it. I love you for it. He gave me a people. And he gave us, as a people, a mission statement. And he gave us six fresh initiatives four years ago. And number three is still alive and well. It is. I'll read it to you. This is one of our fresh initiatives against the rising spirit of indifference. And I do say it is in our church and not just in our culture. And I'm preaching in order to overcome it against the rising spirit of indifference, alienation and hostility in our land. We will embrace the supremacy of God's love to take new steps personally and corporately towards social reconciliation. And I know some of you can say they haven't been very big steps. To which I say, come on in and help us. It's so easy to stand on the edges of a church and point and wait and watch and wonder and suspect. It's hard to commit. In fact, at the risk of offending, I'll just say, That all you folks that were sitting when I had the member stand, I would like to suggest two things. One, go to a church where you can join or join here. Commit. And there are some fuzzy edges in between those two, I realize. But for people who are committed... I will go to the wall with them listening to their criticism. Amen. Tell me about it. Beat me up. Get me to do it right. But don't tell me that from the outside. Come on in and see how hard it is to do this kind of work. When you know after a sermon like this, you're going to get it. 
You're good to get it because you didn't say it right on this score. You didn't say it right on this score. Or you said this. Or you looked wrong here. Or you used this wrong gesture. That's okay. I can, I can handle that. But I won't read unsigned letters. And it'll land on me a lot more if you're on the Racial Harmony Committee helping me. It is hard to figure out how to do this. And I'm so glad hundreds of you want it to happen. It's very encouraging to me. So God is calling us to do more. And I want to show you that call in a very simple way of looking at this text. So look at it. I know I've spent over half my time in background, but I think maybe that will help you feel the weight of this text as I open it. And I'm only going to say one thing from it. I'm not going to exegete the whole thing, though it's worthy of about 10 weeks. I'm going to give it a few minutes. Here's what I see, and I want you to hear it with power. The text begins and ends with two sections. One of them is a description of alienation, and one of them at the end is a description of reconciliation. And then we have to ask what in the world happened between verses 11 and 12 on the one hand and verses 19 to 22 on the other hand. What happened? So let's look at the sandwich here first, the bread around the meat. First, verses 11 and 12, this is alienation. Therefore, remember that formerly you Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. So Gentiles, that's all these ethnically diverse nations out there over against the Jews and Jewish Christians in particular. Remember, he says, verse 12, that you at that time were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That's a terrifying description of alienation from God and from the people of God. But look at verses 19 to 22 and you'll see the whole thing reversed. Beautiful description here of what has happened. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints are of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple of the Lord in whom you are all being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So you see, it begins in verses 11 and 12 with this horrible description of alienation, and it, be- it ends in verses 19 to 22 with this beautiful description of reconciliation. And the question is, what happened? What happened in verses 13 to 18? And before I tell you what happened, get this clear in your head. This alienation at the horizontal level that's being described here, as well as the vertical with God, between Jew on the one hand and all these other racially diverse folks on the other hand out there, that divide is not small and it's not shallow and it's not simple. It's big, it's deep, it's complex. In fact, I think without fear of contradiction, I would say this divide... Between Jew and all those Gentiles, uncircumcised, ham-eating, idol-worshipping Gentiles is bigger than anything we face today. And we face some big ones. So don't write this text off and saying, ah, they don't really know what it's like for black and white, or they don't know what it's like to be American Indian, or they don't know what it's like to be Hispanic or Somali or whatever the group happens to be that's hard to fit. They did know. 
It was massive. It was hard. In fact, it had those three dimensions of religion. The Jews knew the true God. The gods of the peoples were idols. It was cultural, social. They had all these practices. They had circumcision. They had the, the feast days. They had the ceremonial laws of cleansing and certain kinds of clothing you had to wear and ways to do things with threads. And all those things were erected in the Old Testament to keep people at a distance because the design of the Old Testament was exalt the absolute holiness of God in a kind of come-see religion. Whereas today, in the New Testament, it's a go-tell religion. And it was racial. Big time. We have the blood of Jacob flowing in our bodies, not Esau. We got the blood of Isaac flowing in our veins, not Ishmael. And we got the blood of Abraham flowing in our veins, not any other old moon-worshipping pagan out there in the Euphrates. This is racial big time. And religious, and cultural, and social. It is big that's what this text is about. So what happened when it starts with these these people alienated, pushed away, no help, no hope, and ends no longer aliens, no longer strangers, fellow citizens, members of the same house, family, being built into one building for what? The habitation of God. What happened? And I'll just say one thing. This, verses 13 to 18 are worth 10 sermons. Because we're right at the cross. And the cross is like a black hole in terms of mass. You know what a black hole is? It's this, this undescribable reality where the mass is so massive that it sucks everything into it. The, the gravitational pull is almost infinite. And just... Well, the cross, if you get near the cross of Jesus, you're getting near everything. It touches everything. It draws everything into itself. Which is why this is one of the most dense passages of Scripture as far as the meaning of the cross goes, vertically and horizontally, theologically and socially. So I can't take ten weeks, but I can take a few more minutes and just tell you one thing that happened between verse 12 and verse 19. And here it is. The Son of God died. That's what happened. The Son of God died. And He died by design. Where do you see it? Three verses. Verse 13, at the end. You who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see the word blood there? That's the death of Jesus. And what's the design of the bloodshedding of the Son of God? To take people who were far, kept away far because of religious and racial and social things, to take people who were kept far and bring them near. Now don't miss this, you cross lovers. I love the cross of Jesus. It is my life. I have no hope of acceptance with the Holy God apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. But what was the design of this cross that I love so much for me and God? The design of it was, let's just read it. You who were formerly far off 
have been brought near by the blood. That's the design of the cross. The design of the blood shedding of Jesus was to bring the far near, to bring the alienated into a reconciled condition so that there is one body. Let's read the next verse that has it. Verse 15. I see the death here as well in the word flesh. See the little phrase? Abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Abolishing in his flesh, his rent, cross-hanging, nail-pierced flesh, the enmity. What was the design of the rending of the flesh of the Son of God? In other words, why did God ordain this? To put away enmity. Which enmity? Both. Horizontal enmity between races and vertical enmity between God and us. The cross was a bi-directional sacrifice. He died to put away the enmity with God. And with men. And then the last one is verse 16. You see it again. That he might reconcile them both. In one body. To God. Through the cross. So there it is again. So I say the main thing that happened between verse 12 and 19. If you ask what happened here. The answer is Christ died. The Son of God died, and He died by design. And the design was what? One, to bring the far near. Two, to overcome the enmity. Three, to reconcile both, that is, Jew and Gentile, or you could say black and white, or red and black, or yellow and brown, or whatever, to reconcile them in Christ, in one body, to God, through the cross. And don't miss the corporate dimension of this. We evangelicals are pretty good at the individual level of cherishing the cross and its reconciling power with God. We like that. Me and God, we're reconciled. We're not as good at recognizing this verse 16 and understanding that verse. That he might reconcile them both in one body to God. Now notice, it doesn't say all of them like little sparks of light reconciled to God. Little, little places of reconciliation all over the world. Nobody attached to anybody, but everybody reconciled to God. So there's a little spark of reconciliation and there's a little spark. That's not the image. Read it. That he might reconcile them both in one body to God. God loves the church. We're so individualistic in America. Doing our own religious little devotional thing. We are so far probably from our love for, appreciation for, commitment to a body of people through thick and thin, reconciled, a habitation for God it's called in verses 21 and 22. We were praying downstairs before the first service and I don't know why, but... It was just kind of on everybody's heart to pray for dying people in our church. We have people who are dying. And they were praying for the dying to die well. 
And they were praying for the living to help the dying die well. And I was sitting there feeling, this is awesome. This is wonderful. This is one of the things I love most about being a pastor. To, to lead a people into how to help people die well. And the image came into my mind down there of... you. You take a person to hospice and, and everybody knows it's over. Nobody's lying anymore. Nobody's talking and whispering behind any. It's over. You got one week, maybe, to take that person by the hand, round the clock, and with word and song and family and friends, and you take them by the hand and you walk into the river. That icy river. With them. You don't stand on the edge and say, sure hope it doesn't get too deep or sure hope it doesn't get too cold. Or you take them by the hand and you walk them as far out as you can go until you put their hand in the hand of Jesus and he'll walk them the rest of the way. That's my image of how to minister to dying people. And you do it with a word. You do it with song. God, I hope when I die, there are people sitting at my bed round the clock singing amazing grace and some sweet worship songs and some great old hymns and reading lots of scripture because I know I've been sick enough to know that when you're sick, you can't remember the scriptures you wish you could quote to yourself. Your mind starts to shut down. Somebody's got to do it for you. Well, that was a little aside about the value of the church that he loves so much and into which uh, he brings us when he reconciles us to himself. Well, let me, I'll stop here with closing application. I've said one thing, that's all. Christ died by design, and the design is racial reconciliation in Christ to God. All right. At the risk of trivializing it, because it's huge, this is the cross. And if you want the cross to be magnified, do you want the cross to be magnified? We do, don't we? Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory Except in the cross. So I want to glory in the cross at Bethlehem. I want us to lift up the cross. I want us to say the death of the Son of God is the center of our universe. Oh God, make the Son of God dying known and loved and trusted and admired here. If we say that, we're hypocrites. Unless we also pursue the design of the cross. Which is reconciliation and diversity in this room with love and patience and kindness and gentleness and meekness and mutual respect and affirmation. So here are my closing little suggestions. Number one, welcome newcomers every week, whether you feel like it or not, or whether you're afraid they may have been here 20 years. Take a risk, please. You know the loneliest place in this church? The loneliest place in this church is the middle of that commons with 200 people in it. And you're walking from the door of the parking lot to a pew. And you wonder, will I see anybody I know, which I won't probably because I'm new, And will anybody take note of me? And this is my fourth Sunday here. I had a missionary tell me, who came back, she's been here nine years. She said, the hardest place 
is the commons. This is a missionary who's been a member of this church for nine years. The hardest place is the commons. You arrive, you start to walk. You don't know whether to look around because... Look, let's... You might say, oh, that's just not me. I'm not like that. I don't, I don't do that. I just go straight to the one person I know. and We talk. We cleave to each other every Sunday. Well, I'll tell you. Yes, you, you may not be like that. Jesus is like that in you. Let him out. Let him out. Walking by faith means doing what by nature you don't do in the power of the Jesus who can do it. That's the point of Christianity. If you just do what you do by nature, what's the point of Christianity, pray tell? That's number one. In fact, I'd love it if about 500 of you made a New Year's resolution that every Sunday in the year 2000 that you're in this church, you will greet somebody you do not recognize. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Just think about it and make that commitment before you leave, maybe. Number two, invite people who are different from yourself to church. Tell them, we're working at it. We're working at it. And we would like them to come. Number three, be glad when there are ethnic elements in the service that are risky. We're not real risky. We're not. Believe me, we're not. And therefore, when we get letters from people who criticize our little teeny risks, it's not helpful. So be glad. Be glad when there is an effort to try to be more things to more people. Fourth, Ponder the cross of our Lord Jesus in this text this afternoon and the rest of your life and read about it. Get a book in the bookstore on racial relations. We got lots of them and Rick worked to pull them together. And lastly, pray with me for wisdom and sensitivity and courage and how to how to move forward from here. I know one of the criticisms we'll get is all you do is every year flash in the pan. The rest of the year you don't do and talk about this. All right, all right fine. Just help us join the Racial Harmony Task Force and get it on the agenda more often. God will help us if we pray. So let's close right now with prayer. Lord, I feel like at one level I'm talking about the most nitty-gritty, simple, practical, loving things. And at another level, I'm talking about the greatest things in the universe. The cross, the death of the Son of God, and the design of it. In the forming of one new man, the church, the body of Christ, with all peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations reconciled in Jesus Christ, magnifying you, Father. And I know the incarnation means that the, the nitty-gritty practical and the glorious were brought together. So do that. Even as we walk out now, do that, I pray. Why don't you stand for a benediction? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all the people said, Amen. I'll be here at the front. Others will be to pray if you want to pray, but you're dismissed.